Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Have you ever thought about what would happen to your dog or cat if you died? Now, I know it can be a little uncomfortable to think about planning after you're gone, but do you know for sure who would be capable and responsible for caring for them? Have you had discussions with friends and family about this? Or are you just hiding your head in the sand and assuming that it will somehow work out? Unfortunately, if you're like most people, you probably haven't given this matter enough attention. And really, don't you want to make sure that your dog or cat is going to be safe and secure after you're gone? Well, our guest today is going to educate us so we know what steps to take to provide for our dogs and cats when we are no longer here to care for them. Frances Carlisle is a trusts and estates attorney practicing in New York City. She has written articles and is a frequent lecturer on the topic of estate planning for the care of animals, including four New York area law schools. Welcome to the program, Frances. Thank you for having me. Frances, explain the main reasons why we need to plan for the care of our companion animals in our wills. Well, dogs, cats, and other companion animals can and do end up in shelters because there is no one willing and able to take them after the owner dies. And so estate planning is really needed uh, for the care of these pets, for their protection. You know, today pets are really family members. They're They're legally property, but they're really family members, and many people care a great deal about their companion animals and are concerned about what will happen to them in the future. How often do dogs and cats end up in shelters because the failure of their guardians to plan ahead? Is that common? I think it is. I don't have the statistics, but I did a program for a news um, uh, program a few years ago, and I was interviewed, and then they interviewed the director of the shelter of the New York Humane Society in New York City, and that director said that that week alone, they had five animals that were surrendered to the shelter because the owners had died. So that gives you a sense of, of how many across the country must be surrendered every day because the owner has died and there is no one to take them and no planning was done for their care. And then we all know what happens when animals end up at shelters. Many of them get euthanized because there's not homes for yes, them. Yes, I mean, a lot of them get euthanized. Um, there's a, some may get adopted, but it's very uncertain. A lot of people who pass away have elderly animals. Um, they may have health issues. I mean, they're a lot less likely to get adopted. Francis, would you say that most people who have companion animals fail to seriously provide for them in their estate plan? Yes, I think most do fail, but I think it's the fault uh, of the um, attorneys who do estate planning because it's just not part of their routine to ask about animals and to make plans for their animals. I mean, there's a whole tradition of of very careful estate planning for family members, for children and other relatives, for charities and so on, but there isn't this tradition of, of making a plan for the care of companion animals. And that needs to change. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why don't the attorneys provide these services as much as they should? I mean, I find it shocking and disappointing that they don't, actually. Well, you know, some do. But I think it just hasn't been. It's not something that they were taught um, in law school or in um, in their training uh, when yeah. they started out. It just wasn't, you know, you, uh, as uh, say, 20 years ago. This idea was sort of laughable that you would plan for your pets. 
I remember in law school discussing it with people, and they'd sort of chuckle, well, that's sort of silly. I mean, but but things have really changed rapidly. But um, And I give a lot of lectures to attorneys and to also to lay people to try and educate people on the need for this, because if your attorney doesn't bring it up and you're going to have your will done or trust, you should make sure that that they take this seriously and have a good plan for your animals in in your estate planning documents. Now, Francis, you've been in this business a long time. Why do you think people fail to take the appropriate steps? I think it's just lack of knowledge that there is a good way to plan for the animals. They may think that there really isn't uh, a mechanism. Um, they may not know about uh trust that you can create a trust for your animal animals that's a relatively new uh, a new phenomenon that that um, states have been passing these statutes to allow you to create a trust where your animal is the beneficiary and your animal is taken care of for life and I, I just think it's 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 a lack of knowledge because it's relatively new all of this planning let's let's talk about money can animal guardians leave money in a will directly to an animal no no animals are under the law animals are considered property and um, they they cannot receive money directly under the law a lot of people don't like the idea of animals being property you know they feel they're the guardians or the caretakers of the animals but basically under the law animals are property just like a desk or a chair and they have that status unfortunately that needs to change and there's a lot of people working on it but right now animals are property and so um, there, there are a lot of things that can't be done to, to help them but fortunately uh, they can be trust beneficiaries now, and that's a relatively new phenomena, and it's a wonderful estate planning tool for their care. I know I'm using the term guardian to describe the expanded relationship we have with our companion animals, but just to clarify, the law does not really recognize guardian. It, it recognizes legal owner, right? Right, right. A, a, a guardian, the technical term for a guardian is is someone who is appointed to take care of another human who is incapacitated, and the court appoints a guardian to take care of that human. We cannot appoint guardians to take care of animals. So legally under the law, you're not the guardian of your animal. You're really the owner of your animal because it's property, unfortunately. So right. we don't. I, I try to keep the terms clear uh, because uh, it's, I don't want to confuse things. So there's the pet owner owns the, owns the animal. Then um, if you set up a pet trust for your animal, then you will have a trustee in charge of that animal. And maybe you would have a caregiver or caretaker who would take care of that animal. So those are two separate roles for the care of the animal. And we're going to get to trust in a minute. Part of estate planning for animals involves having people named who are willing to participate. What if the client has no friends or relatives willing to be responsible? Yes. Um, one, one method, probably the simplest method of planning in your will or your trust for your animal is to say, I give my animals and um, the sum of so and such and such uh, to my friend or my, you know, my sister so and so and to take care of this animal for life. And that's an, a, what called a, an outright bequest. So that person gets the animal and the money and takes the animal. Now, a lot of people don't have someone, they don't have anyone 
Uh, they're elderly, their friends have passed away, their family members cannot take the animal if they have family members. So they come to me and say, what can I do? Well, one thing is you could create a pet trust, but let's talk about they, they, don't, they want something simpler. They can look, search for a good local animal rescue charity, I tell them, and get to know that charity. And as, say it's a cat rescue charity or a dog rescue charity, and then make arrangements with that charity and say, I'm going to leave you a certain amount of my will. I want you to find a really good home for my animal and, and, and make, have an arrangement with that charity to take the animal and to find a home for the animal. So that's one possibility. Let's assume that's the case. How much money is generally needed to leave to a charity and and when is it given? Well, it would be given in the will usually. It would be uh, a legacy to the charity along with the animal and it can be any amount but some of the charities that, that do this routinely, for example in New York the ASPCA does this uh, as a service to uh, some of its supporters and I believe they require $15,000 to take an animal and place it in a new home. So that's about a ballpark figure. Some people want to leave more, and you, and they, you may be able to make an arrangements with a smaller rescue group to take less if you don't have the money, that much money to give. But $15,000, $20,000, that's, that's a ballpark. Don't go away. We're speaking with Francis Carlisle about estate planning for the care of animals. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the platypus, and specifically about two intriguing features of this peculiar creature. The bill of the platypus, described as being smooth to touch, with the feel akin to suede, and is flexible and rubbery, is used to scoop up its meal, such as worms and shrimp, from the muddy floors of streams, ponds, and lakes. As the platypus lacks teeth, gravel is also taken in at the same time, so its grinding plates can pulverize the food into smaller digestible bites. But the bill may be even more interesting for the specialized sense organs it has. Thousands of microscopic electroreceptors detect moving prey by sensing electrical activity associated with their muscle contractions. The skin of the bill also contains numerous mechanoreceptors called push rods, which are thought to aid in the animal's ability to detect and judge the direction and distance of moving prey. There's still much to be learned about how these sensors work and interact in concert. Another noteworthy aspect of platypuses are the venomous spurs on the heel of each rear foot in males. They appear to be used to fend off rival males during courtship and mating. So as cute as these creatures are, mind their spurs, because the venom they can inject is nasty. It will cause immediate, extreme, and long-lasting pain, which curiously is impervious to the pain-relieving effects of morphine. Its constituents are still being figured out, but one chemical lowers blood pressure, and another looks to be a neurotoxin. Consider yourself warned. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. 
Welcome back to Animals. Today we're speaking with Francis Carlisle about estate planning for the care of animals. Francis, let's now talk about creating a trust for animal care after their guardian or their owner, excuse me, dies. How does a trust operate and how is it different than simply naming a person to take care of your animals should you die? It's called a pet trust and the pet trust operates very similar to a trust you might have for human beneficiaries, for example, a trust for children. Basically, um, in your will or your overall trust document, which serves as a will, um, you create a, a, um, a trust and you name a trustee who would be trustee of the pet trust and um, that trustee would then, once the trust is in effect, would collect the money that's going into the trust. You determine how much money you want to go into the pet trust and, and they would take that money, put it in a separate trust account. Um, they would arrange for the animal to go to a the home of a caretaker where the animal would be cared for. In, or in some cases, the trustee takes the animal into their own home. It just depends if the trustee wants to do that. But often it's a separate uh, uh, caretaker. Uh, the trustee may care, pay that caretaker uh, a little salary for taking care of the animal. The trustee will check on the animal um, uh, several times a year, hopefully, and um, move the animal if the animal's not doing well. The trustee will pay for all of the expenses of care of the animal from the trust fund, the trust account. For example, they'll pay for the veterinary bills. Uh, they'll pay for food and grooming and litter, whatever the costs are. Um, they will pay for everything for the animals. Uh, that way, um, the care give, uh, taker has no uh, expenses in connection with the animal and maybe getting a, a salary as well. And if something happens to the trustee, there, there would be an alternate trustee named to take over. And the court would appoint a new trustee if, if all the trustees named in, in the trust document were, were gone, then the court would appoint another trustee. So there will always be someone available to care for that animal during the animal's life. What happens if the caretaker moves out of the state? Do new legal documents have to be written up? No, no. The same document works. The trustee is still in charge, and the trustee would then make a determination if they, if the animal is doing very well with that um, caretaker and is happy in the home, doing well, then the trustee may say, "Fine, you you can move out of state, and you know maybe I'll I'll only check on you once in a while, or we'll, we'll do video chats or something, and we'll see how they're all, or I'll talk to the vet." and we'll see how the animal's doing. Uh, but it's really up to the trustee. Uh, the trustee is ultimate authority, and that's why I tell my clients it's very important to select the right person to be trustee, somebody who's you know organized and can handle accounts and pay bills and is honest, but also somebody who uh, cares about animals and will take a, an interest in doing the, right, uh, the right, right by the animals. And what if the animal dies and there's still money remaining in the trust for the care of the animal? What happens to that money? Well, every trust should have what we call a trust remainderman. And that means the person or entity that takes the money when the life beneficiary dies. And the animals are the life beneficiaries. 
So, um, and, and, and that way you can put enough in the, you put enough in the trust and you don't care, you know, you make sure there's enough for the animals. But if there's some left over, you're not worried about it because it's going to go to the trust remainderman. Now, often in pet trusts, the trust remainderman might be, um, a charity, like an animal rescue charity. Yeah. So whatever's left over would go to the charity. It could also, the remainderman could also be, um, an individual or individuals. So, but I, I sort of like the idea of naming a charity because if you name a family member, maybe they're you know not too thrilled about having uh, money, this much money go into a trust for the animals, whereas the charities understand the costs of caring for animals. How do the pet trusts mesh with the rest of the estate plan if you're not the lawyer doing the entire estate plan? Well. It, it has to mesh, and um, it's really best to have one lawyer doing your entire estate plan, including your pet trust. Uh, and a pet trust can be either done as part of the will, uh, under the will, it can be a separate trust under the will, or it can be a separate document altogether called an inter vivos pet trust. It can be either one. Now, if the attorney doing the general overall estate plan is not familiar with pet trusts, then then he or she could work with um, a specialist in pet trusts, and they could do the plan together. But, you know, it, it, it has to work out because the money has to be um, looked at. How, how is the, the pet trust going to be funded? Is it going to be funded from the will? Is it going to be funded from a life insurance policy or a 401k? How is, it, how is this all going to work together? So, um, it, it does have to mesh, and the lawyers have to work together, or one lawyer has to do it all. Francis, what if the caretaker thinks she or he needs more money to care for the animal? Can they go to the trustee and appeal for more money? The caregiver can go to the trustee and say, hey, I'm doing all this work, and this animal takes a lot more work because I have to take it to the vet every week or I have to give it shots or whatever, and the, the trustee, it's really up to the trustee, and and if it's a good caregiver, then the trustee may increase the salary. So that's the trustee's choice. Basically, the trustee is stepping into the shoes of the pet owner after the pet owner dies. So the trustee is making decisions, sort of like the pet owner would make. What's in the best interests of the animal? Can a pet trust receive assets other than money? Yes, it can. And um, some of the most interesting um, clients I have, have put their residences into a pet trust. Now, that seems strange, but they have reasons to do it. For example, um, uh, I have one client who has a farm upstate. He rescues horses, and he has also a lot of rescued farm animals, goats and chickens, and as well as dogs and cats. And there's, there are so many animals, it would be very difficult to find caregivers for all of these animals. So he has put his small farm into the pet trust along with enough money to pay for all the expenses of maintaining the uh, house, uh, farmhouse and barn, paying the property taxes, paying a caregiver to live on the property, and paying for the vet care and other expenses of the animals. And that way, uh, that will go for the lives of the animals, and then the property will be sold and it will go on to uh, a charity. So that way he's covered everything and nobody has to be moved. You know, it's a good it's a good idea. And I have other clients that have done that. Um, I have some clients who are rescuers, uh, some rescue cats that have been feral cats. 
they're a little difficult maybe to place. Some people have pit bulls, a lot of pit bulls, and there also can be a little, even though they're wonderful dogs, they're a little bit difficult to place. And so if we put a small residence or we have the trust rent or buy a little residence, maybe up in the country where things are inexpensive, all the animals can live together with a caretaker, and that's a really, um, can be a really good plan for those animals. Trusts and the state's attorney, Francis Carlisle, thank you for giving us this important information. Thank you. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. Listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, that's animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirschner, and thanks for listening. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome Adam Roberts, a nonprofit consultant based in Washington, D.C. He's been working in animal protection for more than 25 years. Hi, Adam. It's good to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Adam, for those of us who follow elephant welfare, a lot of attention seems to go to those animals in the wild with the poaching and the illegal ivory trade. But there are many captive elephants that need safe places to live, and the Elephant Project has exciting news for us. Please tell us about it. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, The Elephant Project is an innovative new strategy to help elephants in need, uh, particularly captive elephants. You know, I think around the world, uh, people are definitely aware of uh, elephant conservation, the threats that elephants face, whether it's from poachers or trophy hunters or habitat destruction. Uh, But I think much less attention historically has been placed on what to do with captive elephants that are in need of long-term sanctuary homes. And of course, in the United States, we're blessed in that we have uh, the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee and the Paws Sanctuary out in California, where rescued elephants can live uh, lives of relative freedom, at least much better than the captive lives that they had to endure. Uh, but globally, it's a significant problem that's not so easily or readily addressed. And uh, a longtime colleague and friend of mine named Dane Waters, uh, and we were talking about sort of how to Uh, create a new strategy for helping these elephants overseas, elephants especially in developing countries uh, where they are in need of help. 
and um, and need some new strategies and and support from from overseas perhaps uh, to um, to enhance the individual elephants' lives. And so the Elephant Project was born to do just that. And and the concept is that we can use kind of a um, a corporate fair market product and model in order to establish a real estate development and the funds from the building of those homes near elephant sanctuary land would fund elephant sanctuaries in perpetuity so uh, we're using you know this this free market approach if you will to protect elephants in captivity Oh, that sounds so intriguing, and I really uh, enjoy the uh, free market uh, ideas involved in that. So, so uh, where do you stand on this uh, project or projects? Right. So, so we're actually at a very exciting launch point where we're just about to meet with the government representatives in Myanmar in Southeast Asia to try and see if we can establish a demonstration project there. And the reason we picked Myanmar and why it's a perfect case study for doing this kind of model for elephant protection um, is that they have uh, historically had this incredibly robust uh, export industry for teak, for teak wood, uh, but because of the threats to the forests and the over-exploitation of teak by the industry, they've had to shut down teak exports, which is, of course, good from a um, conservation perspective. Uh, but for the elephants, uh, there were elephants that were being employed in these teak forests, these logging camp elephants, and now you've literally got thousands of elephants that have no fundamental fiscal or economic usefulness in the country. That means that the people, the mahouts who owned and cared for these elephants have no source of income, and the elephants either will be released into the forest where they may have human-elephant conflict issues with local peoples there. They may be poached for their skins or for their ivory tusks. Uh, or they may be captured again and sold into captivity into zoos and circuses around the world. And so the Elephant Project is working with the government of Myanmar to try and establish this first real estate development in the country in the hopes that we could set aside enough land to take as many elephants as possible. And quite frankly, our goal right now is to try and take more than 2,000 elephants uh, into the sanctuary land because the elephants would be able to fundamentally live a free a natural life in this protected area. Uh, but again, the real estate development that would be placed there uh, would be used to fund the operations for the sanctuary. So all of the fencing needs, the veterinary care needs, uh, all of the needs for running the sanctuary would be funded by having this facility there. And, and uh, we're just, at the, as I say, the launching point for doing that and, and hope to break, the, break ground in, in the next year or so. Oh, that's fascinating. So a site has been obtained? Not a specific site within the country yet. We're sending a scoping team over in the next couple of months to start to look at potential areas and, and work with the government. The, the ideal situation that we hope to pursue is one in which uh, the government would help us by setting aside land that would be needed for the sanctuary uh, and that they would do so and donate that land to us. And then we would fund the development of the real estate community that people can, you know, buy homes. And it could be, you know, people who want to live in these homes. It could be uh, very wealthy individuals who want to have a vacation property that abuts a, a wildlife reserve. Uh, but that we would then take the responsibility on for establishing the actual real estate development that would fund the sanctuary. And, and we would hope to do 
do so in close collaboration with the government. So an individual site within Myanmar has not yet been identified, but the plan is to uh, have a meeting there in the coming months and work with the government to start to do the scoping exercise and decide, you know, which plot of land. And when I say plot of land, I'm thinking a million acres mm -hmm. of land mm -hmm. would be available for, for the project. And are the government officials you're speaking with, are they uh, excited about the prospect of doing this? Yeah, from my from my um, discussions with the ambassador here in Washington D.C., um, I think there is quite a buzz for this project. I, I know I know that this is one of the situations where you have a definitive project um, problem that needs to be solved. Right? You know, there's no question that these elephants. Something has to happen with these elephants, otherwise uh, it's going to be terrible from within the country. And of course, you know, the country already faces a number of of difficult. Um, PR issues in terms of the civil unrest that's happening there now. And so, you know, you don't want to add this on top of this. So, so this is, you know, a situation where we're coming in and the Elephant Project is able to say we have a solution for a very pronounced potential problem on your hands. And so uh, with some collaborative efforts, we can work together to, to solve the problem. So I, I think there is a healthy buzz within the government and definitely some excitement for, for the concept. And I think the other thing that's particularly exciting about this project um, and, and why Myanmar and the government representatives there are excited about it is that if this demonstration project works in Myanmar, it's obviously a model that can be replicated in other developing elephant country range states across the globe. You know, this same sort of thing can happen in Malawi and elsewhere, assuming that you have elephants that are available and in need of sanctuary care and a government that's willing to work with us to set aside the land and allow us to build the community to fund the operations. So uh, this could be simply the first of many in years to come. Mm -hmm. You know, when the uh, first products promoting themselves as uh, fair trade uh, started appearing, it really was uh, a tiny thing sort of on the fringe. Not many people cared about it. But I think uh, a lot more of your average uh, consumers here in the United States care about that or look for like in coffee. They want their fair trade coffee like I do. And so there are retail um, opportunities and opportunities to uh, sell uh, products as another element of, of this development. Yeah, well, when we look at this kind of project, it's definitely um, a wide-scale project in that we want to work with the local communities and we want to work with the people who have these elephants that need to be rescued. And, and we recognize that for right or wrong, you know, whether having these elephants in captivity historically was the right thing to do. Obviously, um, you know, we, we personally never want elephants to be burdened um, or to be exploited. But the fact is, you know, they have been, and this is the relationship that they have uh, with their human owners. And so we also want to make sure that, that people are looked after and that people have a source of income. So we're looking to a retail component for this operation where in this community that we're going to be planning and developing, uh, there will be retail operations there. There will be opportunities for individuals to uh, manufacture local goods for sale, uh, to be hired in the community to work, uh, to continue caring for the elephants, but also look after the property itself. So, you know, we, we hope to have this be um, a, a very strong partnership with the local people and the local communities to make sure it's not seen as intrusive, but as I say, seen as a, um, a problem being solved, both to the benefit of the people and the benefit of the animals. And, and, uh, and I think the model that we have in place is, is going to be one that's going to be awfully successful in that, in that sense. As I uh, start to wrap my brain around this concept, it occurs to me that 
you might have worldwide celebrities interested in uh, aiding or lending their personas to this project, like Richard Branson or Greg Mormon or Yao Ming. I wonder uh, if you've had any contacts that you might share with us. I, I think that's right, and and we have had some some events actually out in in uh, Los Angeles area and Santa Barbara and Los Angeles to to look at ways to to promote this to the celebrity set, and that's definitely on our minds. Not only to get them to front the project and be the face of the project, but quite frankly, also to invest in the project. You know, the image that we have um, is is kind of a. a, a, a fantasy right it's, yeah. it's creating a fantasy but it, but it making it real and that is that you know you have this huge property and and people can literally wake up in the morning and have their coffee on the veranda overlooking this huge forest where there are asian elephants wandering but they're not wandering in captivity they're not wandering in a zoo and you're not gawking at them for for profit for somebody else um you're looking at them from your own veranda in your own off your own kitchen or living room and um and just enjoying the sight of knowing that you know simply by you being there and owning that home you're paying for their care and and their happiness and their freedom so um we think celebrities are definitely going to be involved in that uh, all over the world you know celebrities from every country uh, would want to have a piece of this so yeah i'm, I'm hoping that it's going to develop into something incredibly positive and, and front-facing like that Okay, and so uh, where can people learn more about and uh, maybe uh, get involved? Yeah, I think everyone should uh, should check out the website, theelephantproject.net, theelephantproject.net. We've got updates there uh, as we progress and a copy of all of our plans and intentions for the project and, and ways that folks can actually help us uh, get the project off the ground. Obviously, we're going to need funds in place to do the scoping studies, uh, both on land planning, the sanctuary development, and also making sure we can relocate the elephants to the sanctuary and, and provide for their care. So there are a lot of opportunities for your listeners, listeners to help. Okay, we'll be watching. It's very exciting. We've been speaking with Adam Roberts. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on Animals Today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. the show. Well, uh, I had an interesting animal sighting recently I want to share with you. Uh, I was in Arizona attending a conference and uh, staying at this hotel. And on the grounds, I see this like family, maybe seven or eight. They look like, like pigs. They look like wild pigs or something like that. And they're just walking along the grounds happy. There's a couple small ones. They seem very adapted to the people walking by took a video and then shared it with Lori when I returned. And, and uh, well, Lori, you saw these, I don't know what they were. I thought they were pigs, but what, what was I looking at? Peter, they were javelina. Javelina. And I've never seen javelina before, so I wanted to educate myself about these interesting and I think adorable looking animals. I went to the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum website, since you were in Arizona, I thought that was appropriate. And javelina are also known as collared peccaries, which are a separate family from common pigs because of anatomical differences. But indeed, they do look like wild boar or pigs. They have mainly short, coarse, salt and pepper colored hair, short legs, and a pig-like nose. The hair around the neck and shoulder area is lighter in color, giving it the look of a collar. 
Javelina have long, sharp canine teeth, which protrude from the jaws about an inch. Javelina live in large family groups. I know you said you saw about eight or nine of them, and this is one major adaptation that they have for survival. The average group size is about 10 or less. They communicate with their own family group and other groups using sounds and smells. The adult javelina stand about two feet tall, about the size of an average pig. But as you said, you also saw some... Juveniles. Juveniles or younger ones, exactly. In terms of their habitat, javelina live in desert washes, saguaro and palo verde forests, oak woodlands, and grasslands with mixed shrub and cacti. They could be found in the deserts of southeast Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and southward through Mexico and Central America and into northern Argentina. Javelina are classified as herbivores. They eat a variety of native plant foods such as agave, mesquite beans, and prickly pear, as well as roots, tubers, and other green vegetation. Now, the main predators of javelina are mountain lions, humans, coyotes, bobcats, and jaguars. In the heat of the day, javelina rest in the shade of a mesquite tree or under rocky outcroppings. And in the wild, javelina live to be about 10 years old, although some live longer. And a little interesting fact here, Peter, javelina have a scent gland on the top of their rump covered by long hairs. And they'll rub their scent on rocks and tree stumps to mark their territory, as well as rubbing the scent on each other to help with identification. That's neat. So now that you know all about javelina... Is it time for a break? No, it's time for a quiz. (laughs) You had a feeling? To see how much you know about other animals. This is going to be a new segment for animals today. I'm going to call this the lightning round Mm. animal quiz. Torture method C. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions very fast. You're going to answer them as fast as you can. If you don't know the answer, say pass, or you can guess. Okay. Ready? Listeners are going to play along, try to beat Peter, and here we go. What is the name of the phobia that involves an abnormal fear of spiders? Oh, arachnophobia. Correct. Bees are found on every continent of Earth except for one. Which is it? Oh, Antarctica. Very good. Right. right. What is the fastest land animal in the world? Uh, Cheetah. Cheetahs, correct, can reach speeds up to 75 miles per hour. A doe is what kind of animal? Doe is a deer. A female deer, correct. True or false, cougars are herbivores. Cougars, oh no, false. False is correct, they are carnivores. Group of lions are known as what? A pride of lions. Correct, correct, prides. How many pairs of wings does a bee have? Bee has two pair. Correct. What are baby goats called? Goatee, I don't know. Kids. The crocodile species is believed to have been around for how long? Two million years or 200 million years? 200 million. Very good. Mammals that lay eggs rather than bearing live young are called what? Ah, boy. Ah, pass. Monotremes. How many humps does a Bactrian camel have? Mm. Pass. Two humps. (laughs) One. I would have guessed one. True or false, hummingbirds are very agile and have good control when they fly. However, they are unable to fly backwards. That is false. False is correct. They can fly backwards. A group of frogs is called what? Frog. Don't know. An army. A female donkey is called a what? Don't, um, don't know what that is. A jenny. Michael Bond mm. created what famous bear? How many bear? Smoky bear. The Paddington bear. True or false, sea otters hold hands when they sleep to keep from drifting apart. That's true. I've seen that. True is is correct. Yes. Aren't those pictures cute? What animal is the symbol of long life in Korea? The swan. The deer. Mm. Cats headbutt people because they make them feel safe or they trust them. True or false? Oh, that's true. That is true. True or false. Koala bears 
are bears. That is false. False. They're marsupials. True or false? A group of porcupines is called a prickle. Prickle, that is funny. True. True is correct. What animal is the icon of Australia's most southern state, Tasmania? The Tasmanian devil. Correct. Alphabetically, what animal comes first in the Chinese horoscope? (laughs) The albatross. Boar. Alphabetically, what animal comes last in the Chinese horoscope? Zebra. No, not zebra, tiger. What is the largest living species of lizard? Komodo dragon, green anole, gila monster. The uh, Komodo dragon. Correct. Yeah, yeah. True or false, the bat is the only mammal that can fly. That is true. True is correct. The female or the male lion does 90% of the hunting in the wild. Oh, I recently learned this is the female. Female is correct. What is a group of crows called? A ga- a cro- a, um, I don't know. Were you going to say a gaggle? No, absolutely not. <laughs> a murder of crows. Oh, yeah. Nice. The, the flap of skin hanging off a moose's throat is called a bell or a waddle? A, don't know that, waddle. A bell. Mm-hmm. True or false? Butterflies can taste with their feet. I, I believe that's true. That is true. How many stomachs does a cow have? Cow. Uh... Uh, five stomachs. Of four. True or false? Despite the white, fluffy appearance of polar bear's fur, it actually has black skin. Okay, that's true. True is correct. What kind of animal was Gentle Ben on the TV show? Gentle Ben was a big old brown bear. Bear is correct. Animals without backbones are called what? Invertebrate. Yes, that's right. Coral and algae have what kind of relationship? Uh, symbiotic relationship. Correct. Yeah. How do bees communicate with each other? Well, they have the bee, special bee dance. Dancing is correct. Lupus is the Latin name for what animal? Wolf. Wolf is right. What kind of animal is the source of mohair? The, uh, hmm, alpaca. Mohair comes from angora goat. Mm. What type of mammals fly using echolocation? Bats, more bats. Correct. On a rabbit, where would you find a scut? On the paw? The tail. The study of animals is given the name what? Zoology. Yes. A markhor is what type of animal? Mm, a little uh, furry uh, rodent. A wild goat. A curry comb is used on what type of creature? No idea. Pass. A horse. A fluke is what kind of animal? A fish. A worm. In the Lone Ranger, what was Tonto's horse's name? Tonto, I know. Okay, Lone Ranger. Um, Wind. I uh, don't know. Scout. Oh, yeah. On a common ladybug, what color are the spots? Black spots. Correct. Good, Peter. You did pretty good. I don't think so. Maybe 50%. 50%. That's like a B plus these days, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'd say 50% of the listeners did better than you. Okay, Peter, thanks for playing, and thanks to the audience for playing along, and thank you for listening to Animals Today. I hope you enjoyed the show. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion, the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Thank you.